everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In just a few minutes, you'll be enjoying our interview with best-selling author Andy Thomas, who just released Conspiracies, which you're going to find fascinating. But first, I wanted to take a pre-show moment to tell you about a new show from one of my podcaster buddies named Noah Tesner, whose show, The History of the Vikings, I've been enjoying for the past year or so. He just launched Stories of the Second World War, and it's pretty good, so I wanted to tell you about it. He interviews authors and historians, and all the stories he's done up to today are interesting, ranging from James Bradley's Flyboys to Big Week, the story of the largest air battle of World War II, with BBC broadcaster and best-selling author James Holland, the final days of Nazi Germany with Guy Walters, and other stories from D-Day to the Desert Fox to Winston Churchill all of which are well done. They average about 30 minutes per episode. I just checked out his latest interview with author Saul David about his new book, The Force, which covers a little-known action during the Italian campaign undertaken by a specially trained special ops unit called The Force, which had to storm a German-held mountain fortress by scaling a sheer cliff in freezing conditions. These guys were hand-picked for this mission in top physical condition and most were outdoorsmen who lived in northern climates. Because this was winter in Italy, and this mountain blocked the Allies' progress toward Germany, and it was going to be very, very tough to take down. Noah's an excellent interview host, and his guests are top-notch. Search Stories of the Second World War by Noah Tesner Podcast, and you won't be disappointed. Now, on with our show. Today's episode, an interview with best-selling author Andy Thomas, gives me a chance to remind you that we recently launched a new show called 1001 History's Best Storytellers. That's 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we place our author interviews after we've premiered them here at 1001 Heroes. So if you enjoy our interviews, now you can catch them all in one place. That's 1001 History's Best Storytellers. Subscribe today at whatever app you use. Along with Stories of the Second World War, with Noah Tesner. I'll leave the links in the show notes for you. And now we join our Andy Thomas interview in progress, as Andy shares some of his personal background prior to the interview. Yeah, I mean, I write books. I edit books for other people as well. Uh, and I sort of organize events and uh, do things like that. And uh, yeah, in between, give a lot of talks and things. So yeah, that kind of whole world, really. Listeners, I want to introduce you today to Andy Thomas, who wrote the book Conspiracies. The Facts, the Theories, and the Evidence, and it's a fantastic book. It just covers every area you can think of in terms of conspiracies, and we're going to talk about some of those today. Andy's agreed to give us his time and his expertise, and uh, I can't wait to talk to him about a lot of really great, interesting subjects, at least interesting to me, and I'm pretty sure they're going to be interesting to you as well. Let's start by having you explain to our listeners how you define a conspiracy theory. So if you look at uh, the word conspiracy, it's really quite straightforward. It is a group of one or more people conspiring, as you would imagine, to, you know, coordinate a series of events, normally dark events. And a theory is, of course, where you then step back and you consider that maybe this is something that's going on in a number of different areas. Uh, and I've always not had an issue, really, with the phrase conspiracy theory. I know some people do, uh, and they don't like to be called a conspiracy theorist. But sometimes we don't know the whole story, so we have to theorize a bit. And if that makes us a conspiracy theorist, well, fine. You know, technically, I don't have an issue with that. But, of course, it gets used as a term of abuse to mean that, you don't know what you're talking about and you believe in anything. Which actually, in my experience, that isn't the case with with many serious uh, conspiracy researchers. Uh, they, they actually are often very intellectual and do do a lot of research. But yes, yeah, so there we are. That's what conspiracy theorist is all about. One of the one of the chapters or genres in your book was false flag conspiracies. And there's two I'd like to talk about today. Uh, one would be the sinking of the Lusitania. I wonder if we could start there. Sure. I mean, obviously, uh, if you look at the history of war, you will often find conspiracy theories uh, coming up around war because clearly it is in the interests of certain parties in a war to stir up hatred against the enemy. And so you get a lot of false flag 
conspiracies. And if anybody doesn't know what we mean by that, of course, uh, back in ancient Rome and other civilizations of that time, they would do this thing where they would either dress their ships up in the colors of the enemy or they would hijack ships of the enemy and they'd use those ships to turn around and attack their own fleet. So it was a way then of inciting hatred against the enemy. So, so lots of people think that this still goes on today. And the Lusitania incident was in World War One when one of uh, uh, our British liners, oh, here in the UK, so this was a British liner which regularly went back and forth across the Atlantic. Um, when it came into British waters, of course, often it would have a lot of American people on board. So we would always send out warships to escort it safely into harbour because there were many German U-boats in the Atlantic at that point. Uh, and yet one day, mysteriously, uh, the warship escorts vanish. It's left on its own. There's no explanation given for why it was left unguarded. And within a matter of hours, the Lusitania was sunk, torpedoed by the Germans. And many have wondered to this day why that ship was left vulnerable. Because, of course, once it sank, it, it was a huge outrage, both here in Britain and in North America as well, of course. And many have considered that that ship was deliberately left vulnerable so that the propaganda value of its sinking uh, would have the effect that indeed it did. So, the, you know, that's just one of a number of conspiracy theories uh, around Lusitania. And some people have even blamed Winston Churchill for having given the order to leave the ship vulnerable because he was the first Lord of the Admiralty. Now, that's the person that will make the big decisions for anything connected with the Navy over here. And uh, he indeed did write a letter shortly before Lusitania went down in which he did express the view that it would be quite useful if a ship went down because that would then enable America to join the war and then we would have more help. So, you know, on his watch, a ship is left to be torpedoed and many people believe that he manipulated that, which is, of course, quite shocking for some people because Churchill is seen as a great hero. Uh, but some other people think he, he was a ruthless operative who would do what was necessary rather than what was morally right. So, you know, this is one of the kind of examples of a, a false flag attack that you get in wartime. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's really a stretch to believe that, but he had every single motive to do it. it, it it's, it's no wonder, especially after that letter. And I'm on your page 52 of your book where you write, uh, just months before, on 12 February 1915, in a letter to Walter Runciman, president of the Board of Trade, Churchill wrote, It is most important to attract neutral shipping to our shores in the hope of, especially of embroiling the United States with Germany. For our part, we want the traffic. The more the better. And if some of it gets into trouble, better still. That's some pretty damning words. Indeed, yes. <laughs> they are pretty damning. And so, I mean, you could see it as coincidence that a ship, you know, uh, went down just a few months later. But but many do consider that, yeah, that Churchill deliberately left a, a ship vulnerable, which is rather sad. But, yes, uh, others could argue he needed to do that. But um, it's a difficult and a dark area. And and that was a that was a a pretty terrible sinking, was it not? Where How many people were lost on the Lusitania? That was a passenger ship, right? Indeed so. Oh, I think, uh, think 12,000, uh, sorry, uh, 1,260 people went down. Uh, many of them, of course, were women and children, just everyday folk. Uh, and I think that was the scandal of it. There were posters which uh, were issued rapidly after the sinking of that ship with, with a painting of the mother and the baby drowning uh, and a simple word, enlist. Uh, and that sinking was uh, used to bring a lot of people on board to support the conflict in World War One, especially America. I mean, it wasn't the only event that would, of course, bring America into the war, but it was the beginning of a feeling that maybe they weren't going to be able to stay out of it. So, yes, it, it was certainly used for huge propaganda value. And a very similar situation with, uh, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, in 1941, a lot of conspiracy theorists believed that that he uh, at least saw the the uh, the invasion of Pearl Harbor coming. Uh, what's what's your opinion on that, and and where do a lot of the conspiracy theorists sit on that? What do they use as proof? Uh, well, I mean, this is one of the problems that we have because, of course, uh, some people are very uh, patriotic 
don't like to hear that perhaps uh, Pearl Harbor was a setup. But it must be said there are many leading naval historians who've written that they believe that Pearl Harbor was at the very least allowed to occur. I mean, there's one well-known book called A Day of Deceit by the naval historian Robert Stinnett. Uh, and even he accepts that it does look highly like this was a setup, because we do know, of course, that uh, Japan, who, you know, according to official history, appeared out of nowhere and attacked Pearl Harbor. But in fact, they were being provoked. I mean, oil was being blockaded. You know, there were things going on that almost certainly were going to, in the end, stimulate some kind of response from them. And the evidence is pretty clear that warnings were received. They knew when an attack would occur. They knew where. But, of course, Roosevelt uh, had already gone on record as saying that he thought America should join the war. But, of course, many people, again, were trying not to get involved. But after Pearl Harbor, it became impossible not to be drawn in. So this is, again, another event where some felt that they knew. They knew this was going to happen. They'd prodded to make sure that something might happen like this. And then they stood back and did nothing. And uh, again, I know some people get very unhappy at this. But if you look at the evidence, I'm afraid it is more than likely that that is what happened. And again, you can find quotes from leading sort of naval staff like Vice Admiral Libby, who was, you know, top Navy brass back then. Uh, and I think he's on record as saying, um, I will go to my grave convinced that FDR, Roosevelt, ordered Pearl Harbor to let happen. He must have known. So, you know, this isn't just a conspiracy theory. This is something that uh, was believed even by people on the inside at the time. So, again, it follows a pattern that you, you will often find in history of events, even, you know, even being engineered sometimes, but at the very least being allowed to occur for the value that they then have afterwards. Also in your book, one that fascinated me was Watergate. Explain where the conspiracy theorists sit on Watergate. I mean, Watergate is one of those interesting things where everybody knows the word Watergate, but as the generations go by, less and less people seem to really know what it was about. And on the surface, I mean, it wasn't really about that much. At first glance, it's a case of political espionage, which, you know, many will know, of course, President Nixon was uh, implicated in having covered up knowledge of a burglary which had taken place at the Watergate office, which, of course, was then the Democratic National Committee headquarters. So although, of course, some have accused him of deliberately ordering the burglary, that was never proved, but it was proved he had known about it and had then tried to cover it up. So then you get down to why. So that's always been left rather vague. It was enough to undo Nixon. It was proved eventually that he had covered up knowledge of it. Um, you know, he, he was a very paranoid man. And many people liked Nixon, but he was clearly worried that he was being undermined and he had put recording equipment in the White House. So, of course, then when the Watergate scandal broke, there was his own voice on these tapes, making it clear that he'd been part of the cover-up. And yet, although he was forced to resign, uh, when then Gerald Ford came in, because he'd been vice president before, then when he came in as president, he pardoned Nixon. And, of course, under American law, that means no further investigation can take place. Uh, and therefore, we never really got to the absolute bottom of what Watergate was all about. But there are many theories about that. Uh, and some of them, indeed, have uh, even linked it to the JFK incident. Well, at the time, wasn't Nixon running against McGovern? Yes, that's and, right. I and mean, McGovern Nixon was very unpopular. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure the odds makers in Las Vegas were giving Nixon five to one on that election. What What blows me away is why would... Why would anybody on Nixon's team want to break into the DNC to get uh, to get their uh, plans for uh, for winning with McGovern when they pretty well knew they had it in the bag? Well, you see, that's where you get to the other ideas about this, because some say that would not have been a good enough reason to, you know, break and enter into the Watergate building. Right. Interestingly, some years later, uh, one of the burglars, a man called Frank Sturgis, I mean, he had connections to the CIA, there were mafia connections, but he was, you know, he'd gone into prison for being part of the burglary. He made a statement saying that the reason that 
those people were ordered to go into the building was that they were trying to retrieve incriminating photographs that would approve CIA involvement in and Nixon's involvement in the assassination of JFK. So some believe that if that's correct, and obviously others have disagreed with him, but if that was correct, then Watergate, really the true reason for the break-in was to cover up people who'd really, really been involved with the shooting of Kennedy. So that then, of course, makes Watergate much bigger, because that would then make it seem like it was part of the cover-up around the whole JFK thing, which, of course, famously is an extremely famous conspiracy, which nobody's ever fully got to the bottom of. And it does, it makes more sense of why Watergate did blow up in the way that it did. So it may well be, yeah, that it was more than just the stuff about McGovern, but it, it was going back to events which had happened years before. So, you know, there are always layers to conspiracy theories, and Watergate is one which definitely has layers. But what Watergate did, and this has had a massively lasting effect, was break people's faith in the authorities, especially in the president. I mean, you know, now perhaps we take it for granted that we can't trust politicians, but back then, I think that was a real shock. Uh, And so it's never, I think, a lot of conspiracy theories grew in the wake of Watergate because then it had been proved that the authorities were not being truthful either. Uh, and, and I think that had an unfortunate effect, although some of the conspiracy theories, as the book explores, of course, uh, have turned out to, well, be very likely. Let's take for granted just for a moment on Watergate that Nixon did not order the break-in and that number two, number two, obviously that would... Uh, lead to the fact that the men who did it did it under the authority of someone or some organization. And let's also assume that it had nothing to do with Kennedy's death. With all the research you've done, have you come up with a, a conspiracy theory that would fit that parameter? It's more than possible that the people who were involved with the Watergate break-in did not inform Nixon of what they were doing. That is possible. And that is indeed one of the arguments that's been made, is that Nixon didn't know about what was going on. But unfortunately, what is, I think, pretty clear is that Nixon was part of trying to cover up that it had occurred because he knew that it would be damaging and that he would be accused then of having given the orders to send the burglars in, which, of course, he was. But that has never been proved. So it is certainly the case that there may well have been factions that were even setting Nixon up. That's um, what, that's what up it looks like to with, me. It may well be true. Uh, You'll often find there are layers in any conspiracy sort of uh, subject where there are different factions perhaps trying to set the other lot up. And it's possible. It is possible that that was also the case here. Yeah, one of those guys was CIA, was he not? Was it Haldeman? I believe so. Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, I mean, also we need to remember that when the FBI investigated Watergate, um, there were there was certainly money which the burglars were in possession of uh, that seemed to sort of derive from a, a slush fund, which had been used by the committee for the re-election of the president, which again was used against Nixon. But whether he had full knowledge that that was going on, again, that has never been proved. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Let's go to the Gus Grissom story. Would you share that with our listeners? I thought that was fascinating. Yes, Gus Grissom, for sure. Okay, so we're now into the, the moon landings. Yeah, excuse me. I know that was, uh, a, that was a big segue we just made. but <laughs> Yes, that's right. Well, no, it does, in a way, it does join up because in the wake of Watergate, a lot of people started to then doubt any public story. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, an early big conspiracy theory that came through, actually remarkably early, was that the moon landings may at least have been, if not misrepresented, in some way, then actually hoaxed. And as we've seen with the recent uh, 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions, a lot of people do not believe we've been to the moon. The polls are quite damning on that, which doesn't prove that we did or didn't go. But there are certainly some interesting areas around that. Some of the evidence, when you look at it, the photographic evidence especially, is very hard to believe it is on the moon. Now, some have argued, maybe... When they got to the moon, maybe the pictures wouldn't come out because of the extreme temperatures, the radiation, the vacuum. There's a lot of arguments about film not surviving that kind of environment. And therefore, when they came back, they had to then create some images which proved that they had been. So one argument says they did go. The images didn't work. They had to then stage them in a studio later. 
But of course, others have argued, if you look especially at the radiation issue, actually, the astronauts probably shouldn't have survived for that long when they got back. And yet they seem to be okay. So that is why some have argued, actually, we never went. So this argument's never gone away. But Gus Grissom, okay, so to come to the Grissom point, by the time sort of uh, he was training up as an astronaut, he was clearly being positioned to be the first man on the moon. Had it uh, gone a different way, he probably would have been. But when he was training on the Apollo 1 uh, mission, he was very vocal in saying that he did not believe that the technology was ready to get people to the moon and back in one piece. And he very famously at one of the press conferences, he was so damning about their chances, he hung a lemon on the outside of the capsule. In other words, making the point that he thought this whole thing was a lemon, it wasn't going to work. And he started to get death threats. Now, this is according to Grissom's family. And he said to his wife one day, if, if there is ever a serious accident, quote, in the space program, it's likely to be me. Well, of course, then when just a short time later, he and the whole crew of Apollo 1 died in the fire on the launch pad, um, it seemed that that was uh, quite a, well, shall we say quite a canny prophecy and a rather tragic one. And a lot of people have thought, they try to get rid of Grissom because he was revealing too much that they weren't actually ready to go to the moon. The Grissom family have gone public and have said they absolutely believe that he and the whole crew were murdered. And some years later, Grissom's son, Scott, by that point, he, he was himself a qualified aerospace engineer. He found a little metal plate that had been inserted, it would seem, into the dashboard of the Apollo 1 craft the only function of which could have been to have caused a fire. Now, if that's correct, which the Grissom family believe it is, it does look like they were set up to die because they were in a very oxygen-rich atmosphere. And in an oxygen atmosphere, you only need one spark and that will set light to the whole atmosphere. And they couldn't get them out in time. So some have argued, was Grissom shut up, basically, uh, in the most uh, terminal of ways, because he was threatening to reveal the reality that Apollo was not ready to go to the moon. And it's just worth noting here that the NASA safety inspector who was brought in to then investigate the fire, a man called Thomas Ronald Barron, he also concluded that the Apollo 1 fire was almost certainly sabotage. And worse, he looked at the whole technical feasibility of Apollo and also concluded that they were not ready to go to the moon. But shortly after revealing that, uh, Barron himself was killed in a mysterious car crash. So there are many conspiracy theories around this. What I think you can say, though, is when you put that together, the Grissom, the Barron story, with some of the evidence which we have today, because, of course, now we have photographic analysis techniques that people have not had for decades, it does certainly look like some of those images are not on the moon. And whether some are and some aren't, we don't know. But I think it's pretty clear they haven't told the whole truth about it. But again, some people get very fiercely defensive about this because, of course, that's a big human achievement that nobody wants to hear brought into question. But it won't go away until all of the answers to, you know, reasonable questions about the, the strange anomalies and the evidence uh, are finally settled. And we're certainly nowhere near doing that yet. Would you share a few of what you think are the most widely circulated conspiracy theories involving aliens and UFOs. Sure. I mean, this was an area that I was interested in. Really, this brought me into the conspiracy world because I began by researching things like this uh, and crop circles and all these things that are ridiculed. Everybody says it's all fake. They're all man-made. UFOs are all just people misreporting stars or satellites or whatever. When you look at the evidence, that cannot be the whole truth. I agree with you. One thing is, I mean, it, there are things flying around in our airspace which are not conventional. And all right, some of them almost certainly must be military. And yet there are other things which are very hard to even explain like that. I mean, I, over the years, because I give a lot of lectures, you know, so I meet a lot of just everyday folk. I have met so many pilots, military and commercial pilots, policemen, soldiers, who've told me about the UFOs they've seen. And a lot of them are behaving but, uh, sort of 
in a way which no conventional craft does. They'll suddenly turn a right angle in the sky at incredible speeds. Well, there is literally nothing that we know of that can do that without killing the occupants. And unless there is some military technology that is literally a century ahead of what has been revealed, it could suggest that there is something else out there. Plus, of course, you've got the people who have claimed to have had interaction with alien creatures. And it's interesting because one of the studies, you know, there have been studies made about the psychological makeup of these people that claim to meet aliens. Um, Some people say they're all mad. They're, They're all, you know, damaged in some way. Actually, that is not what these investigations show. And Professor John Mack, for instance, who used to work at Harvard, uh, he did a study and they interviewed hundreds of people, put them under psychological analysis and hypnotic regression. He concluded at the end of it that they weren't all fantasists. They weren't just making it up. They clearly believed that these experiences were real. And some believe that whether these creatures people are seeing are in reality, aliens, or even if it's just a strange psychological sort of dreamland type sort of in, you know experience, either way you've got a phenomenon that you cannot just ignore because thousands of people every year claim that they meet these creatures. So whichever way you look at it, there's something going on. And just to say that there's nothing going on, it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense. And there are clear cover-ups when it comes to UFOs. Uh, as anybody who's tried to use the Freedom of Information Act to get documents released about UFOs will tell you, because all you get back are vast swathes of redaction and big black blocks over text um, about subjects which we're then told don't exist anyway. But, you know, it's clear that they're not telling the truth. They don't want us to know, at the very least, what is flying around. So, yeah, in UFOs, I think you can categorically show we are not being told the truth about. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. We've done a number of episodes about, uh, or at least that involve UFOs. And in some of those circumstances, one can make an argument that they're a product of our military or Russian military in other circumstances, no, that, that, that just doesn't, doesn't fit the mold. And the capabilities of these craft just exceed, far exceeds, at least especially in the 1950s and the late 1940s and the 1960s, the capabilities seem far exceed anything that we had at that time. Now, I'm sure we've got ex- experimental craft out there that can do some pretty awesome things. I'm also sure that at some point we inherited downed alien craft, and we've reverse engineered them and tried to do our best to to learn what we could learn from them. But obviously, I don't think we've reached that point yet, but there's lots of rumors. There was a rumor that a craft went down in the Black Forest and that the Germans had it, and that uh, that's what they were able to reverse engineer a good deal of it, and that's what led them into a lot of their uh, rocket uh, research. Well, I mean, you touch on something quite interesting there, which is that these sightings of, uh, you know, craft doing incredible things, they actually go back a very long way. And in World War Two, both sides, the Allies and the Germans, they both witnessed strange objects flying around doing things that they could not do. And they nicknamed them Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters, yep. And this is a long way back. So we're talking the 1940s here, of course. Um, and it's, it's slightly hard to believe that even with what we knew then militarily, that they were testing military craft like that, that they didn't then go on to use in, in the decades after that. So that's a long way back. Of course, you've got Roswell in 1947. And what Roswell has in common with the Black Forest incident that you mentioned there, and also to a degree... Uh, potentially the Rendlesham Forest incident, which took place in Britain here in uh, the early 1980s. Are you familiar with the details on that one, that you could share it? I'll come back to Rendlesham. I'll come back to Rendlesham in a minute, because it is interesting. But what they've all got in common is that the military are having interactions uh, with these things that they may well have retrieved knowledge from. If you believe that a craft was retrieved at Roswell, which a number of people, including Major Jesse Marcel, who was involved with the initial cover-up about Roswell, they have said that what they witnessed in their view was extraterrestrial. It would stand to reason that the military must be trying to copy this technology and use it for modern military technology. And uh, I mean, 
one of the there was a, the project called the Disclosure Project, where a number of military people or ex-military came forward and testified about their UFO experiences. And uh, one chap, Colonel Robert Salas, who I, I met once, very fine gentleman, uh, he was present in 1967 when the Malmstrong nuclear base had a visitation from again a classic flying saucer, basically. And as it hovered over the base, the nuclear missiles of that base were suddenly rendered inoperable. So if that is the case, we are dealing with things with incredible power, incredible power. And that then links to Rendlesham Forest, because Rendlesham Forest uh, basically is the site of an American military base. And uh, in, I think, 1980, there were a series of nights where a number of the soldiers, the American soldiers who were on patrol, uh, witnessed uh, directly a craft, strange lights. There were many arguments about this, but very, very clearly something did occur. And uh, there's been a lot of new research going into this just now, trying to once and for all pin down what occurred. But again, it, it's as if that these craft are very, very interested in the military bases there. And there have been all kinds of claims about what was being kept under the ground at Rendlesham Forest. Some have claimed they did have nuclear missiles there again, although that had never been officially acknowledged. So that is absolutely A, an interest in UFOs from the military, but B, they certainly know far more than they're telling us. And it would stand to reason that if they could get even any slightly any of that technology, uh, they would use that technology for their own ends. And maybe some of what we're seeing, you know, flying around today is a hybrid. You know, a lot of people think the stealth aircraft, things like this, these are hybrid technologies we're seeing, which they have at least partially derived from things that they found or retrieved. Uh, and I see no reason to say that that could not be possible. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of motive there with regard to the U.S. government keeping things quiet. Uh, a couple of different Great reasons. One is uh, they're trying to uh, bolster their uh, defense and and experimenting on items that no one else has. They're certainly not going to advertise uh, how they found them. And number two is public fear. If they started literally reporting what they know or what they've learned about aliens and alien craft, you'd have 75% of the people just fine about it, the other 25% just bouncing off walls. And all you have to do is all you have to do is go back to the world, the world's uh, radio broadcast in 1938 that had people throwing uh, suitcases into their cars and escaping uh, New York City and New Jersey to, to get away from the aliens that were attacking. I think that is true. I mean, of course, it would depend on what the nature of the uh, extraterrestrials that the authorities might be in contact with are, because, I mean, if they are completely benevolent uh, and actually bring us nothing but gifts, why would you want to cover that up indefinitely? Um, although there is another theory that actually the powers that be do not wish to lose their monopoly on power. Because, of course, the day we admit there's something else out there that is incredibly powerful and that can shut down our nuclear weapons if it likes, that immediately means that we are reduced in power. You know, the authorities we look up to would then not be respected so much because you know that there's an authority above them that is even more powerful. So I would imagine they wouldn't be too quick to shout about that anyway. Or... Some of the ETs are, are malevolent, in which case, of course, no, they wouldn't want to create panic. And yet I would have to say if there was a malevolent ET force out there that was going to wipe us out, presumably it probably would have done it by now. Uh, and it's hard to see that um, that would be the main reason to be here. But as we know from a thousand science fiction films, you never know. But as yet, I haven't seen any evidence of that. There's a great theory out there. I don't know if, if you've uh, run into this one or not, but for years, there have been cattle mutilations going on that no one can explain exactly how these cattle were mutilated because we, we know of no machines that can do what's been done, stripping away all their blood and everything else and just leaving the carcass there. Uh, and some people say that it was a result of an alien contact we made and whatever area they were from or planet they were from needed basically a transfusion. And, they, and, and our bovine blood on this planet was capable of doing that. So we, our government assisted them in that and did for years. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But when you start really researching on cattle mutilations, which we did for one episode, it gives a motive to all that. Have, have you heard anything on that? 
Yes, indeed. I mean, obviously, some of the uh, the uh, very good research has been carried out by people like Linda Moulton Howe. Uh, and there is no question that there are some very strange mutilations. Now, I know that skeptics say that some of these things, they're just, you know, natural injuries or even maggot infestations, making it look like some of the flesh has been taken away. But that really does not explain all of them. And for anybody out there that, that isn't aware, it's almost as if sort of with laser precision, certain organs have been removed. And they're, they're often very specific, often around the mouth or indeed around the genitals. Now, why? We don't know. But as you say, missing blood, uh, even reports of like brain tissue having gone missing, and yet you cannot see how it got extracted. So, yes, then you come down to why? Why? Now, some have suggested the whole thing is military and that actually aliens aren't involved at all. Although the only thing I feel about that is, if that's the case, could not the military just buy their own cows? You know, they can't be that expensive, surely, rather than trying to do it surreptitiously. So, yeah, uh, and again, you get the sightings of aerial lights. Often, when these creatures are found, you will find that the very night or even the day that that occurred, people have seen lights in the area. So it, it's happened enough that I think we can say that there is something going on here, which again, cannot be dismissed. But then you're back to the question mark of what's the motivation of these creatures? If it is extraterrestrial, you know, are they not able truly to, um, we have to say, why would they be using the blood of cattle? You know, if these are extraterrestrial creatures, this is something which presumably if they're advanced enough to come here and visit us, then they would, uh, you know, they would not surely need the blood of our cattle. So, you know, these are arguments you can send around and around. I apologize for the phone going. Explain crop circles as you did in the book. So, I mean, crop circles, that's something that I've written about in other books. They, they get a few mentions in the conspiracies book. But uh, this is something which has been going on for centuries. If you look back at the evidence, it's clearly been going on at least since the 1600s. There's some very good records and illustrations of what are clearly crop circles from the 1600s. You've got several hundred reports over the centuries since. And then we have photographs from the 1930s. And then, of course, they kind of break into public awareness in the 1980s, and then especially from 1990 onwards, where these much bigger, these much more complex designs started to arrive. So this is where you have to then say, is this an intervention from somewhere else? Is it an expression of some strange collective psychic force going on in the fields? Is it a natural force or is it all man-made? Now, in my personal view, and I've spent 30 years looking into crop circles, I do not believe that they are all man-made. Some are definitely man-made, yes. Uh, but when you look at some of the ones that have appeared, they've often appeared in circumstances which just don't allow for that. Man-made formations sometimes have taken several days to create, or at the very least, long hours for even a team of people to make. And yet we know that some very elaborate crop shapes have occurred in very short periods of time. There are eyewitnesses, people who watch these things occurring within seconds. And again, aerial phenomena, strange lights, often a part of those sightings. There are strange sounds. We have videos even, which are of course contentious, but there are some videos showing crop circles appearing. But you've got geometrical, mathematical evidence in some of these things that is extraordinary. Some of these things are really works of genius. The way the plants are laid down, the weaving, the layering, the biological anomalies that have been discovered in some of these plants. These are not things that you see replicated in man-made crop circles. So if we say that some are not man-made, then of course we have to wonder what is the source? And that's something that still people are debating about all these years on, and quite rightly, because some people think crop circles went away long ago, and that's actually not true. Uh, they are still going strong today, especially in the British Isles, but other parts of uh, Europe. France has had many crop circles just this summer, for instance. So although we don't hear much about it, uh, that doesn't mean it's not going on. And again, some people think that the fact that crop circles don't get reported much these days is yet another cover up. It's something which somebody out there does not want us to be looking at. Because, of course, it may be evidence of some kind of intervention, which, again, somebody would prefer us not to know about. Could you share with us uh, the conspiracy that surrounds uh, 
the death of Princess Diana? I mean, Princess Diana, obviously, especially here in the British Isles, where it was a very big figure. You know, the death of Diana was something which hit people on a very sort of deep level here and around the world, too, of course. But it's strange because very early on, people were feeling somewhere in their gut that there was something just not right about the story of her death. So, of course, we're told that it was a mere car crash. The driver was drunk and that was it. He lost control of the car. The car was racing through the streets and it crashed in uh, an underpass. However, when you actually look at the whole evidence, there are certainly grounds to doubt that they've told us the whole story. I mean, one of the big issues is that the driver, a man called Henri Paul, uh, was completely inebriated while he was driving. And yet the blood sample, which they claim proved that, did get mixed up with somebody else's blood sample. Now, even the authorities have admitted that, but they then say some of the other tests they did on the eye gel, for instance, suggest that he certainly was drunk. However, if he was as drunk as they say he was, according to their tests, he shouldn't have been able to have got out of bed that night, let alone be completely normal. Not one witness said he was drunk. Not one bit of CCTV shows him anything other than walking around quite normally. So there are many anomalies around that. In fact, a few days before the uh, British inquest, which did conclude it was only a drunk driver, in fact, the family of Henri Paul had been assured that he was not to blame. And yet then when they got to the inquest, it was as if they'd changed their minds completely and blamed it all on him. Because, of course, that then makes things much easier. You've got other strange things. A white Fiat was involved in the crash in the underpass. It sped away. We know it was a white Fiat from the paint that was left on the side of the car. There were tales of a strange bright flash. So another argument is, was it a staged car crash? As in, somebody deliberately helped to begin a car crash and the Fiat knocked into the Mercedes. It then spanned the Fiat drove off. There are assassination techniques that have been used to do this uh, by the likes of the CIA. It is something that is known. And of course, this is denied by the authorities. But many people wondered, well, we ought to know more about that white Fiat. The French authorities said they couldn't find it. The CCTV in that part of Paris was off that night in a very unusual move. Uh, Mohammed al-Fayed whose son Dodi had, of course, also died in this crash because Dodi Fayed was going out with uh, Princess Diana at this point. Um, Mohammed Al-Fayed hired private detectives and they found uh, the owner, or they believed to be the owner of the White Fiat. And yet shortly after he was exposed, he was then found dead in another car which had been set fire to. He had a strange hole in his head that looked suspiciously like a bullet hole. And John, John to think Paul any... James Anderson, right? Yes, indeed so. Yes, yeah, sorry, I should have said that. Yes, so Anderson or Anderson. And that's been seen as deeply suspicious that no inquest has ever considered that that is meaningful in any way. And yet many people think that we ought to have known more about that. And his suspicious death, which looks very like a killing, although the French said it was suicide, again, the evidence does not look like that, uh, leaves people to wonder really what is going on. And these are just the beginnings. I mean, there are so many layers of doubt. And one interesting one is that there is a story which uh, is something which I believe is reliable, we're on the night of the crash when Diana was taken into the hospital in Paris. She was actually still alive. Now, yes, badly injured. Nobody would deny that. But the French doctors who attended to her, they believed that she would pull through. They thought she would survive. And then in the, in the middle of the night, uh, the British doctors arrive and effectively say, well, thank you very much. But, you know, we'll take over now. She's our jurisdiction. And shortly after they escorted the French staff out, British staff came out and announced that Diana had died. Now, nobody could understand why, because they considered that she should have lived. And it is said that one of these doctors who was present that night, one of the French doctors, was actually going to write an account of what he witnessed because he thought the whole thing was so suspicious. Uh, but unfortunately, having announced that he was going to do this, he was then shortly found dead after another strange car crash. 
So it could be coincidence. But when you stand back from the whole story of Princess Diana, it does feel like something is not right. And over here, when they've taken polls as to what the public believe, the vast majority of people believe that Diana was murdered. So most British people in their stomach somewhere feel that she was murdered. So, and one thing is clear, like so many conspiracy areas, we have not been told the whole truth. And the minute they don't tell the whole truth, and that becomes fairly obvious, you are going to get conspiracy theories. Because, of course, you have to, to try to fill the vacuum of what they're not telling us. So in a way, they invite conspiracy theories by not being straight. And just one last thing to say, of course, Diana also believed that there was a plot to kill her. She had written that to her butler. She'd written it to her solicitor. So we know that she believed that uh, there was a plan to kill her. And the fact that then she died in mysterious circumstances soon after saying that makes it uh, even more suspicious. Hmm. Fascinating. Listeners, we're talking today with Andy Thomas, who wrote the excellent book, Conspiracies. And it's just a lot of food for thought. I know some people are going to be shaking their heads and clenching their fists and running for a ledge. But again, these are just conspiracies. And Andy has done a lot of research on them. I am going to put him, I'm going to put a little pressure on Andy, though, and ask you, Andy, of all the conspiracies that you've researched and gotten into, can you name and give us the story on three that you think are most likely actually conspiracies? Sure. I mean, obviously, we've covered some of them. I, I would certainly in the top three include the moon landings, okay. in there, oh, which wow. we've covered a little bit today, because I do feel that whether we did or didn't go to the moon, and obviously there are satellite images showing dots on the moon, which may or may not be the craft, there is something not right with some of the images. So until the day we land next to those sites and we get new images showing everything left as it was, as it should still be there, with exactly the same lighting conditions, I don't think we're going to know for sure. But I do think, and many people do, that some of those images, if not all, but some of them are not reliable. And we do know that NASA has manipulated a number of images and indeed faked them. I mean, if you just take the famous image of uh, Neil Armstrong, well, he took it. So it's Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon as taken by Neil Armstrong. It's the classic image of the astronaut that we tend to see everywhere. Even that image has been manipulated. NASA has added a wedge of black sky, it's adjusted the contrast, and there are many issues around the lighting in that uh, and the angle. Big mistake, guys. So even that, the official version is not the same. It is not the same as the as the uh, original image. So and the golf shot, some people are saying, was a cut and paste, right? Oh, the golf shot is without question a cut and paste because, A, it's an impossible angle to have been taken because... There was no camera on a tripod there where you can see both astronauts in the shot. A golf ball's clearly been pasted in and you can find the original images that they've montaged it from. So that is absolutely a fake. And another one that does the rounds or did for a few years was an image of Michael Collins spacewalking from uh, one of the Gemini craft in the mid 60s. So, OK, it's not Apollo, but... Um, he's seen there floating in space. But then a few years later, somebody found an image in the NASA image bank showing Michael Collins inside a test aeroplane. And it is clearly the same image. And they've cut him out and they've stuck him on black and reversed the image. So, you know, there are NASA fakes. There's no question. And if they can do it three or four times, how do we know they didn't do it three or four thousand times? And some so, yeah, I do think there's something wrong. There's something wrong with that. And some theorists would tell us that the picture that never made it was the one of an alien craft sitting on top of the rim of the crater just watching them. <laughs> uh, well, that's another theory. Well, that's one theory which says that they did go, but what they saw was unshowable. And actually, I mean, we should bear in mind a few astronauts have said that they witnessed UFO activity on their missions. I mean, the late Edgar Mitchell is one who, who also said that. So I think when astronauts themselves start to talk about that kind of phenomena, you know, we do have to consider it. Uh, so it is possible they got there and what they found, they simply were not allowed to show or did not feel that they could show. Uh, and that cannot be ruled out either. Yeah, there's apparently very, very tight restrictions on what these guys can say uh, at any point. <laughs> Even after their retirement until death, uh, there's only a very few who have come forward and spoken up. But when guys like Mitchell do talk, uh, they are fascinating because 
these are professionals. They've, they've doing it all their lifetime. Uh, and uh, they're going to tell you what they saw. And some of those things that are out there on YouTube are, are really uh, interesting. They are interesting, uh, but it is also worth looking at some of the astronauts' testimony because they do contradict each other quite a bit. I mean, some astronauts have said the stars were very bright in space. Others have said you couldn't really see them properly in space. Uh, and then you get very strange reactions. If you look at the crew of Apollo 11 after the first lunar landing, if you look at their press conference, they look very depressed. They don't look like men overjoyed to have stood on the moon. They look very subdued. And many people think their body language, the whole tone, they, they do not look like men who've been on the moon and are overjoyed about it. So were they covering something up? And of course, one of the theory is that the astronauts believe they did go to the moon. There are mind control techniques. We have entertainers over here. We've got a guy called Darren Brown who can implant completely false memories. And it's not impossible. Can't be ruled out that they actually believe they did go to the moon, but that even they don't know the whole story. So, you know, there's more to it than meets the eye. I would say that much. And certainly we have not been given the whole truth about the Apollo missions. Name a couple more that you felt were very likely conspiracy theories. So, I mean, just to tread on sensitive ground, I, I know, especially over there, but I have to say 9-11, I'm afraid, is very hard to believe the full story of. Uh, when you look at the evidence of that, and I do write about this in the conspiracies book and try to give some of the reasons why people do doubt the uh, official story. Uh, there are certainly many, many anomalies in the official story and the physics of the towers collapsing and even what hit the Pentagon and beyond, which do make you have to doubt that story. Mm. And I know many people find that very, very hard yeah, to you're, hear. You're treading on shaky right. ground over here. I know that because uh, there, there were a lot of people well, sitting in their there, there were a lot of people sitting in their cars on 395 uh, when that jet uh, crashed into the Pentagon. But I'm not saying what did happen, and I'm very careful not to say that in the book. But you have to be honest and acknowledge anomalies. And if people feel they have reasonable answers to some of the anomalies, well, that's fine. But they should at least be aware of why people do question it. And we should recall when they had the 10th anniversary of 9-11, which is, of course, a few years ago now, um, they had a few polls around the world. And over 50 percent of the world does not believe the official story of 9-11. That doesn't mean they're wrong or they're right, but, but it says something that there is something not right there. Uh, and all I can say is people should, at the very least, even if they don't want to believe it, acquaint themselves with the reasons why people doubt. Because if you can understand that, you, you will then at least realize that we've not been told the whole story. So sorry, I apologize. I know some people... You don't have to. This is a conspiracy theory book, and you're perfectly welcome to see whatever you want. <laughs> So that's one. Uh, and I think, you know, again, we've talked about UFOs. I mean, if you're looking for something that absolutely unquestionably we're not being told the truth about, you know, it comes back to UFOs. There's no question that that's something which is potentially huge and would change the very uh, our very understanding of what life on Earth is if there were intelligent beings out there intervening here in some way. That changes everything. So, yes, I can understand why, to some degrees, that would be covered up. Uh, but I don't think it will be possible forever. So, you know, that is certainly another big one. I mean, beyond that, there are so many different conspiracy theories. I mean, the ones that I include in the book absolutely are ones that I think are worth discussing. And I suppose perhaps the other one we should put in there is the whole notion of the New World Order, that there is a ruling elite which has various factions. Sometimes they work with each other. Sometimes they work against each other. But I think there's no question that there are secret societies, some of them, some of them are more secret than others, which carry huge power. And they do have gatherings, they do have meetings, and they make decisions which we do not get to democratically discuss. And I think the New World Order, which many people dismiss as a conspiracy theory, actually has a very clear history. You can find where it began, you can trace it, and I trace some of that in the book. Um, that is something you cannot deny. Now, whether you see the New World Order as a force for bad or for good, some would say it's for good, it is to some degrees down to the individual. But again, some of what they do is dubious. And the fact that we're not allowed to hear some of the decisions that their gatherings make is not fair. Because when you do that, 
And yet you can see that bodies like the Bilderbergs or the Trilateral Commission or the Council for Foreign Relations or whatever, when you see how much influence they have around the world, and yet we are told we are not allowed to know what they discuss, that is not fair. And then, of course, you have groups like the Bohemian Club, which meets once a year in California, and they dress in strange robes and worship a giant stone owl, and we're told it's all harmless entertainment, but... A lot of other people think there are kind of darker agendas there. You know, some of the symbolism is very occult. Does this mask something deeper and darker going on down below? But either way, you know, it does go on. And yet you don't hear this discussed very much in the mainstream. So, again, it would suggest that somebody out there would like to keep it out of the mainstream for the most part, even though we know it's real. Journalists are broken in. They film the ceremonies. You know, there's no question that it exists. But again, we don't hear anything about it. So that is something worth, again, being informed about. There's no point living in a world with a blindfold on where we need to face the facts of what is going on. And these are facts. Those are not even conspiracy theories. Where the theories come in is then looking at why are they doing this? What are they not telling us about what their motivations are? And of course, that's then when it gets a bit deeper. Explain where you fall on the Illuminati. Do you believe they exist? I mean, the Illuminati, if you're going to use that exact word, were a real order. But back in uh, the 1700s, they were founded in 1776, which is, of course, the same year as the foundation of America. And it was a Bavarian order where a group of gentlemen were basically trying to gain more influence without legitimately gaining influence. But it's interesting that, of course, that very same year, the United States of America declares itself and some believe that although the original Illuminati got disbanded within 10 years, I mean, they were found out it didn't last that long, that the ideals of it were certainly seeded around the world and very strongly in America, especially, but also here in Britain. And there's no question. I mean, there are orders like Skull and Bones and Phi Kappa Beta. We know these orders exist. This is not news. But again, they clearly have great influence. And if you want to brand them Illuminati, that's fine. But we should understand that the original Illuminati were a very specific order. I think it's become a bit of a catch-all term now. But if you just say ruling elites, that's probably more accurate because I think there are factions. I don't think they always agree with each other. I think sometimes they work against each other. Therein maybe lies some hope. Because I know some theorists see the New World Order factions as being all-powerful and there's nothing we can do. I actually don't agree with that. Uh, and I think you can see them making mistakes. You can see them arguing amongst themselves. And that means that they're not united. And it means there's cracks in their power. And therefore, we need to make sure that we understand that we should never allow one elite to just govern everything. Because that's not a very wise world. And so, yeah, it's certainly worth finding out more about the people who are really pulling the strings. And uh, it's not that hard to find out. But you won't be hearing about it on your average news bulletin at night. You know, you have to do a little bit more digging. And I mean, the hope of the book here, Conspiracies is to introduce people to these ideas in a very accessible way that gives them enough information to see there's a serious case to be made, and then people can trace their own paths from there. That is the hope. It's a good starting point. But even if you are aware of a lot of this, it's a good kind of refresher. It makes the facts very clear. And then people at the end of the day must decide for themselves where they stand on it. I agree with you 100%. Uh, the book is excellent. I recommend it to all our listeners. Really fantastic. We've only covered a handful of the theories and information that's in here. And just like Andy just told you, uh, this provides a good uh, starting point for you to research anything you want and really uh, go deeper into the weeds. But he's done an excellent job of research on, on these pro and con all the way through. And it really makes it for a great read. Andy, could you tell our fans how to get in touch with you and how to get the book? For sure. Yeah, well, the book, I think, will be out in uh, either November or December, UK and the US and Australia, the English-speaking world, basically. You should find it very easily on Amazon or in a bookstore. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to find out about me and uh, the things that I do and lots of videos to watch, uh, if you go to my website, it's truthagenda.org, so truthagenda.org. Dot org, uh, and there you'll find out, uh, you know, where I'm speaking, and there uh, you can find out what my background is and, and information about the books, of course. So yeah, truthagenda.org. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it.
Nice meeting you today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, okay. John. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us at 1001 History's Best Storytellers, our author interview podcast, which is a spinoff from 1001 Heroes. And since we're new, we really, really need reviews, you Apple Podcast listeners. So help us out when we sign off here and send us a good one. Look for Conspiracies by Andy Thomas with the big yellow cover, wherever great books are sold. We only covered a fraction of his stories in today's interview, so pick up his book, and I promise you... One note, too. You can find all our episodes of all our shows at one place. And that, and that's www.1001storiespodcast.com Again, that's 1001storiespodcast.com All of our shows, all of our episodes. Just thought you ought to know. Enjoy. Enjoy.